BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, let's get into Geekonomics here. Uh, Professor Richard Wolf is on the line with us, our friend, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, and Artie Wolf with 2Fs.com, Prof Wolf on Twitter uh, with 2Fs. Uh, Professor Wolf, uh, we're, we saw the stock market has dropped about 20%. It's now, uh, maybe it's bounced back a little bit, but it was officially in bear territory for the few days. And everybody on television, you know, all the investment people and whatnot were saying, well, you should diversify your portfolio with bonds. So I, I wanted to do a deep dive into bonds. You know, what is a treasury bond? What's the difference between a bond and a bill? What, is an, what are these exchange-traded funds, these bond funds? Um, what are corporate bonds and how, you know, what role do they play in all this? Or are, are they even accessible to average investors? And how can people interact with all of this stuff as part of their portfolios? And are bonds inherently safer than stocks? What's the deal here? Well, my advice would be not to follow the advice that you've been seeing on uh, television, uh, radio, or anywhere else, because bonds are an instrument that go down in price, down in value, when interest rates go up. Since interest rates are in the process of going up, and Mr. Powell at the Federal Reserve has told us July and so forth, the rest of the year, are likely to be interest rate increases, you would not want to own bonds at this time because they will be going down in value, which, by the way, they've been doing for most of the last 6 to 12 months. So had you been given that advice before, it would have been a disaster. And if you've been given it now, it's likewise a disaster because there's no guarantee that they wouldn't go down in price more uh, than a, a bundle of stocks now, uh, especially because they've gone down, the stocks have, uh, for a while. But let me ans answer your basic questions. A bond is simply a loan. Don't get mis misdirected by the word. It's simply you have lent money to someone if you buy a bond from them because the bond is like an IOU. It's a piece of paper, but it used to be in the old days, now it's done electronically, that says that the borrower has received, let's say, $1,000 from you, promises to repay it on a specific date, and promises to pay you interest each year between the time you lend them the money and the time they have to pay it back. If the borrower is the United States government, it's called a treasury bond. It's simply an IOU. Uh, you've bought a bond from the United States Treasury. You can do that through a bank. You can do that through a stockbroker if you have one. Um, that kind of business is done all the time. It's a specialized business because it's not a share of a company. It's not a share of the United States government. It's simply a debt relationship. You've lent money, and the federal government owes you that money. It is considered the safest bonds because the United States government is presumed not to be in default, presumed to be a safe entity to lend to. 
or to be more honest, the way to put this is, if the government is having trouble paying you back, then getting your money back is going to be the least of your problems because the game is over and your next meal is what ought to concern you. Right. Okay, now, second, you, you don't have to only lend to the government. By the way, the same applies to other governments, to the German government or the Spanish government or the Chinese government, doesn't really matter. All of these uh, governments borrow money and issue bonds which can be purchased uh, by the public. The second thing is a corporate bond. It's exactly the same, except you're lending to a private enterprise, a corporation. You know, like, I don't know, IBM or Apple or uh, Pratt Whitney or you name it, uh, all kinds of larger corporations issue bonds, even some medium bonds. You will sometimes hear a phrase like a junk bond. That's when the bond is issued by an entity that has a very bad credit rating. In other words, it is somebody or an entity, a corporation, a private entity that is not doing real well. And if you go into this business, you should look at the credit ratings provided because it will give you an idea of how risky the borrower in each case is. But once again, it's an IOU. They pay you interest uh, for the period of the bond, which can be as short as a few months or as long as 20, 30 years and everything in between. Um, and now the last one. You don't have to lend to the government and you don't have to lend to the private sector. You can do one more thing. You can become an investor in what is essentially a fund made up of a whole bunch of these bonds. It's a way, uh, if you want to go into this, to diversify your risk, because you're not putting all your eggs neither in the governmental bonds nor in the uh, corporate bonds. And I've left out also that you can lend bonds to state governments and to city governments. Those are all government bonds, but the only ones entitled to the name treasury bond are when you lend to the federal government, not to the state or local governments. Anyway, if you want to buy and diversify your risk, you can do one of two things. You can buy a mutual fund. There are loads of those. That's a, You buy a share of the fund, and then that money is used by whoever runs the fund, usually called the fund manager, and that person buys and sells bonds, and you get monthly checks for your share of the interest being generated by those bonds. And then occasionally you get a bit of a return called a, a capital gain when they sold a bond for more money than they paid for it. Basically, there you pay a fee, and that fee is what you're paying the active manager of the fund who goes in and out and buys and sells. And finally, the bond ETF. The letters ETF mean, stand for Exchange Traded Fund. It's, think of it as a mutual fund of bonds. In other words, you're buying something which in, makes you the owner of a whole portfolio of bonds being managed by whoever sells the ETF. The difference is you can buy and sell it, you know, 10 times a day. It functions on the stock market like a regular stock, even though it isn't that. It's a way of making uh, your situation very liquid. In other words, you can get rid of this bond fund instantaneously by a phone call to your broker like any other stock you might own. And so it was invented some years ago, not that long ago, as a way to allow people to be active on the stock market and yet still participate in something that isn't a stock, namely a fund of bonds, and then the ETF can be in a government bond fund, or a corporate bond fund, or a state bond fund, or an international bond fund. It's a highly developed uh, system, and it is available in our society if you are more comfortable with lending to someone and getting, you know, that kind of relationship rather than buying a share of stock gives you some ownership and participation in the profits you hope the company will make. Normally, yes, you want to have a, what's called a diversified portfolio. You want some, if you have money in the stock market, to participate in profit. And then 
you want more, uh, some in the more stodgy, slow-moving bond market where you're not participating in anybody's profits. You're simply uh, engaging in a lending kind of game. The problem is, depending on the larger economy, one or the other of these may be safer or riskier. Since we are right now in a bad situation in our economy, bad for stocks, but also bad for bonds, I find it bizarre to get advice to anyone to buy more bonds, because with interest rates going up, that is almost certain uh, to go down in value. Uh, if you're very shy of the stock market and you see the logic of what I've just said about bonds, then you ought to do what in other circumstances you wouldn't do. But the advice, and I'm not giving advice because I'm not uh, in a situation to do that. I, I don't know anyone's particular situation. But if I were to give advice, it would be to hold cash right now because that's less likely to go down significantly. It will be hurt by the inflation, which makes money less valuable. But the inflation is still going way slower than the crash of the stock market over the last six months and of the bond market over the same time. So I, I understand that, you know, if, if I've got a, a, a $10,000 bond that matures in one year that pays 1%, and the new bonds that are coming out pay 2%, that people are less likely to want to buy that 1% bond from me. So its price goes down in the buying and selling exactly marketplace. Right. But it is, still, exactly right. it is still paying 1%. So if I put that $10,000 in, I get you know, $1,000 back a year from now. Um, so if I'm not buying and selling, isn't a bond pretty much like a CD? I mean, you know, there are inflation indexed bonds that the federal government sells. You can only buy up to $10,000, but you can buy them from Treasury Direct that are running, I think, 6% now. Um, so it, actually buying bonds and holding them as opposed to getting into the trading of bonds seems like it's sort of like dealing with a, a, a savings account, but you can't, you can't find a savings account right now that'll pay more than a half a point. No, that's true, but be careful. Unless you are really keeping track, you can, uh, this line between, you know, what's risky and what isn't is mostly mirage. Mm. You could have all kinds of shocking developments, either in the stock and bond market or in your personal circumstances. And if you need to have a major operation or you need to be of help to your, your children or a relative or a good friend, you may need that $10,000 tomorrow. And if you happen to have needed this at a time when the bonds have dropped down, you could be really hurt. Uh -huh. You can't assume everything is going to be all copacetic between now and whenever that bond pays back. Because it's an illiquid vehicle. That's right. I get it. I get it. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, democracyatwork.info, the website, or rdwolf.com, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Professor Wolf, thank you again for dropping by. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. We always learn something. Thank you. Douglas in Dewey, Arizona. Hey, Douglas, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? I used to live in Mesa, Arizona, where Rusty Bowers was top of the heap, and I believe he still is, uh -huh. which used to be LD19 prior to 2010. That's when I was pretty active, mm -hmm. not so much anymore. 50% of the registered voters were Republican. 25% were independent, slash they voted 75% of the time, but they voted Republican, and the rest were Democrats. And if you are a Democrat that lived with Rusty Bauer on the ticket, I really do believe, with his decision to throw out the right to subvert the vote and now this stuff with the elections, you know, change your registration to independent and you're allowed to vote in any primary you want in Arizona. Well, that's interesting. So <laughs> tell me about Rusty Bowers. He seems to have had a moment. I mean, you know, there, there's this thing that you learn, and, and it was a real revelation to me, but I realized it's like a life lesson. Louise and I attended a writer's workshop in Hawaii back 20 years, maybe 30 years ago, and uh, one of the more, more famous novelists in America was giving this speech, and, and he said, if you're going to make your characters come alive for your readers, 
you don't tell people what color their hair is or what kind of suit they're wearing or what kind of car they drive. You, you do all those things, but that's not what makes their char- your characters real. That's not what reveals who they are. What you must do is put your character in a situation where they have to make a horrible choice that they know will forever change their lives. A difficult, challenging, horrible choice. And when they make that choice, that's when their true character is revealed. And I know Rusty Bowers was, you know, uh, one of the guys who helped pass anti-gay legislation in Arizona, helped pass anti-voter legislation in Arizona. He's been, you know, the top of the heap of terrible Republicans. But when that final horrible choice came, he did the right thing. So what do you think about it? So that's why I, I, well, I don't live there anymore, but if I, if he was on my ticket or LD and I had a chance to vote to keep him in there and I know my guy is not going to have a chance, I would support him knowing that uh, I believe his opponent in the primary is one of the election deniers. So yeah, so you would, you would support him in a Republican primary, but not in a general election. In other words, um, in other words, it, you'd, you'd rather see him come in I, inevitably. If I had a weak, weak Democrat running against him. I would support him in a general election Whoa. this year. Well, but I, I would not. Otherwise, I would say no, because it, it. Why not put him in place if he's going to safeguard democracy like he he's claiming he would? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, he and Raffsenperger. Democracy's on the ballot is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, this, but they, but I think it's weak tea. I mean, these guys are saying that they're in favor of democracy, and they stop the most egregious. They stop Trump, but they both have been and have endorsed, and Raffsenperger actually did purge hundreds of thousands of voters, principally people of color, off the voting rolls. Yeah. I mean, they're they're all about that. So. They're not completely down with democracy, but I get your point. Douglas, thank you, and thanks for the perspective of somebody who once lived there. I do appreciate it. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Okay, down in Florida, Publix, the supermarket drugstore chain, has announced that, you know, now that the vaccines are available for children under five, they're not going to pass them out. We will have nothing to do with this. ABC Action News received a statement from Publix Supermarkets spokesperson Hannah Herring confirming that report. According to the Publix website, COVID vaccines are available for people ages five and up but not below. Now, why would this be? Well, here are a few headlines from, uh, a, a, that, that may provide some insight into why this is the case. These are just headlines from various stories you can find on the internet. Quote, pro-Trump Publix heirs donated $25,000 to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis last month. Quote, 
Publix was handed a vaccine distribution deal weeks before donating $100,000 to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' PAC. Quote, Public, Publix Harris donated about $300,000 to Trump for his January 6th rally. Quote, Publix Harris donated more than $450,000 to groups who helped organize January 6th insurrection. These are all publicly available headlines. Quote, in December, the company made four $25,000 contributions to the Friends of Ron DeSantis political committee. And, quote, Publix donated around $200,000 to sponsors of the Don't Say Gay bill. I get it that, you know, corporations are free to exercise their politics. They're free to, you know, under the, the current interpretation of the Constitution by five right-wing cranks on the Supreme Court and Citizens United, corporations are free to pour as much money as they want down the throats of people like Ron DeSantis. But when corporations start making decisions that could cause the death of children for political purposes to curry favor with politicians like Ron DeSantis. I'm personally of the opinion that they've gone too far. I don't know about you. I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I'll pick up your calls in just a few minutes, but uh, it seems to me like this is beyond the pale. Geeky science. This is a fascinating study. It was just published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, which is a peer-reviewed journal. This is the first of its kind study looking at the association between levels of vitamin D in your bloodstream and whether you develop dementia, which is of particular interest to me. My mother died of Alzheimer's, of dementia. And she also was agoraphobic. She was afraid to go outside. She did not, I mean, she would, she would leave the house, but only with my father and, you know, in the car. And she, uh, in the last probably 15 years of her life, I don't think she left the house other than maybe to go shopping once in a while, pretty much at all. So she got no sunlight. And she died of Alzheimer's. And here it is. A first-of-a-kind study reveals the, that the lack of vitamin D, which is the vitamin in your body that is, you can get small amounts of it from food, but most of it you get from being out in the sun, or you can get capsules of it, of course. The lack of vitamin D leads to dementia. The research showed a direct link. Now, that's real rare in, in science for things like, you know, a medical condition and a supplement. It's often really hard to connect the two. Like, for example, they, they, they found that uh, you know, for they, they found that certain B vitamins, B6 and B12 in particular, reduce the level of homocysteine in the blood, which is supposed to be a, a good thing. If you reduce that level, it's supposed to help your brain not get dementia also, it's, it's, or help your brain function better. But then when they did studies where they gave people B vitamins and other people not, they showed no difference. Well, then later they discovered that you have to have both B vitamins and omega-3s. If you have both of those together, they act synergistically and they reduce homocysteine levels and they, make your brain, they protect your brain. So, you know, it's really rare that you find these one-to-one -one associations between one particular nutrient and one particular health condition. But this is very, very clear. This is the study came out of Australia and the Australian Center for Precision Health said uh, vitamin D is a hormone precursor that is increasingly recognized for widespread effects, including on brain health. But until now, it had been difficult to examine what would happen if we were able to prevent vitamin D efficiency. They found that low levels of vitamin D were associated with lower brain volumes, brain shrinkage, and an increased risk of dementia and stroke, which can produce dementia as well. They said that genetic analysis supported direct causal effect of vitamin D deficiency and dementia. And then they added up to 17% of dementia cases might have been avoided by simply boosting vitamin D levels to be within a normal range. In other words, getting out in the sun every day or if you live in a place where, you know, through the winter you can't get out in the sun, take vitamin D pills. Now, I've also seen studies suggesting that people who take really high levels of vitamin D end up with hardening of the arteries because vitamin D helps bind calcium. But then there's other studies suggesting, well, if you take vitamin K along with the vitamin D, that doesn't happen, which is what I do. But, you know, keep in mind, I'm no expert on this stuff. I'm just sharing with you what I've read and what the research says. I'm not 
recommending to you to do anything. I, I can't offer you health advice. I'm not a doctor. Um, but uh, this is what I'm reading, and I think it's absolutely fascinating, and I thought you might want to know. Defending America from the weapons of mass deception. Linda in Auburn, Washington. Hey, Linda, it says you disagree with me. What's, what's that? What's up? Well, you had a recent caller that talked about she didn't like fascism and um, religion. And you did not correct her about religion. And I want to put a word in to encourage people and you to look at what the founders' ideals were. And the Bible was part of that. And looking, people who studied the Bible at that time saw that the teachings went progressively to where we focus on what Jesus said. And that is not a message of racism. It is a message to love one another and take this message to the nations. So I'm saying that as we've gotten away from looking at the Bible, taking it seriously, looking at it as a historical document that our founders looked at, that's how we get the racism. Linda, I, I, I appreciate like I appreciate your embrace of love and your your rejection of racism, and I I, I salute that. But just just for the record, um, yeah, there were some founders who were hardcore uh, Christians. Uh, probably the most famous of them and the most outspoken of them was Patrick Henry, who was also the largest slaveholder in Virginia, maybe the largest slaveholder in America. He had over 300 enslaved human beings. Um, but he was probably the most outspoken of the Christians. And he used to regularly get into battles because he lived in Virginia, which is where Jefferson and Madison were from, with both Jefferson and Madison. Jefferson did not believe in the Bible. In fact, he took the Bible, the New Testament, took the first four Gospels, cut out all the words of Jesus, strung them together, and said, this is the Bible. You know, just, just pay attention to what Jesus said. Don't, don't listen to all this other nonsense. Um, it, you know, it's, it's still in print. It's called the Jefferson Bible. Um, James Madison, and, and Jefferson went on to say that, you know, it basically uh, churches and religion have been the, 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 the scourge since the beginning of humanity. James Madison's first veto in public office was a piece of legislation that would have provided money from the federal government to pay for a poorhouse in Washington, D.C. that was being administered by a Presbyterian church. And Madison was a Presbyterian, and he vetoed it because he said federal money should never go to a church. And to establish this as a precedent would you know, lead to the destruction of our republic. We've got to keep religion separate from, from, uh, from politics. And, and, and from governance. And that was when the phrase, the, the wall of separation between church and state became relatively famous. So no, the founders rejected that the Bible should have anything to do with, this, with uh, law in the United States twice in the Constitution. It says there shall be no religious test for public office. In other words, it doesn't matter what religion you are. We, we are not basing this country on religion. We are basing it on a secular principle of democracy. And then in the First Amendment, it says that there shall be no, the, the government shall not interfere in the free exercise of religion and essentially shall not promote religion. So, uh, you know, just to, just to correct the record, Linda, you know, the founders were not about religion. But I'm, I'm with um, you. You know, the Bible does, you know, if you actually follow the, 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 the words of Jesus, which are, frankly, in my opinion, not being followed by the GOP and these so-called evangelical Christians, you know, and, and particularly the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 5, 6, 7, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 25, where the, those places where Jesus explicitly said, if you're going to follow me, here's how you've got to act. That is not what the Republican Party is doing right now. In fact, those have become the principles, frankly, in my opinion, of the Democratic Party. Linda, thank you for the call. Paul in Benton, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Wow. Uh, where do I start today? Uh, you know, I was going to say um, one thing about, uh, you know, these groups like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and stuff. We have to stop referring to them as militias. Uh, it gives them credibility. Um, you know, they... Uh, they're, they're basically the right-wing extremist groups or the right-wing domestic terrorists. There's only one well, uh, well-regulated militia in this country, and that's the National Guard. Yeah. And 
this uh, uh, poll that came out that said 58% of the people want to see, uh, you know, Trump and his enablers prosecuted. 42% don't. Well, that's the same 42% that didn't want to get vaccinated, didn't want to wear masks, uh, that were, you know, harassing school board members, that were harassing doctors. So Beating up on flight attendants, yeah. Yeah, we got we got like 42 to 46 percent of this country is 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 they're down with fascism. They're down with violence. And, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's uh, it's it's just, you know, I don't see any way to turn it around. And the the irony here is, you know, that 80 year cycle that you've you know, you've talked about right. um, 2000, uh, 2025 will be the uh, 80 years since the end of um, World War II. War II. Yeah, this I is. Think, uh, I, I think these, this next decade, and uh, you know, or this decade, the decade of the 2020s, is going to determine the fate not just of the and future, not just of the United States, but of the entire planet. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I, uh, I like I said, I think it's too widespread. There's, uh, you know, there's too many, too many guns and stuff out there. Uh, I mean, these people are just itching for violence. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Paul, but I don't know you. what to do. Yeah, well, I, th- I think the uh, number one, we need to call it out. Number two, we, and identify it. Number two, we need to, to be visible and, and share our opinions with our friends. Stop being afraid that they're going to be upset or they're going to be offended or they're going to ghost us or whatever. Um, be who we are and, and, you know, follow the example of Brad Raffson, Perger and Rusty Bowers, right? <laughs> Speak up. Say, no, this is not on my watch. This is not happening. And and get politically active, get engaged. Uh, this is Steve Bannon is calling for this every single day in his podcast. Every single day in his podcast, he's telling people go out there and become a precinct committee person, volunteer to be a poll worker, volunteer to be a poll watcher. Every day he or virtually every day he is promoting that. Very smart guy, and and that's how you take over a political party. It's how you take over a country, and we need to be doing the same thing. Paul, thanks for the call. Mark in Las Vegas. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hi, yes. Hey, you know, let's tie a few things together. We've had fascism in this country before, and we were able to kick it out. Yeah, and that was Woodrow Wilson. Yes. Woodrow uh, Wilson. So after that. Oh, yeah. During, uh, during World War One, go back and look. Uh, there was some great documentaries on this out there. The gentleman from PBS did one. And uh, there were laws that were directly against the Oh, you're talking the Alien Sedition Act. The, Among other things, yeah, yes, yeah. Um, and that was and, and and you know fascism is a marriage of of state and business is the normal definition of right. that. But Along I wanted to move forward. Nationalism. Because, yeah, absolutely. But uh, the fascist strain has been there in our country, as you just intimated, from almost day one, and. Uh, we've successfully fought it before. I mean, we went through John Birch Society. We've uh, we've been there. Uh, Nixon certainly had a lot to do, and we with the leftovers from Nixon, as I would put it, Bill Barr, the retowned menace, uh, did one good thing in his life, and uh, he's not a hero for it. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, originally my uh, my observation was going to be regarding uh, all these threats of violence against the January 6th committee. We know these have been going on. I would like to see hiring ramped up in the FBI and Department of Justice and go after these people as hard as possible, publicly in chains, march them to the courthouse so that uh, the other people who are threatening violence can think twice about it. And thank God for the Southern Poverty Law Center for all the good work they do. Amen, Mark. And they're they're worth uh, supporting financially, too. Mark, thank you very much. Yeah, we need laws against domestic terrorism in the United States as a starting point. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. There was an amazing post over on Reddit by Joy, J-O-I, and it was a story about a guy in Italy, and he says uh, he has no, no health insurance. And he said uh, he had a serious injury, bone, tendon, and ligaments, one of his knees when he was skiing in the Alps. He says, I was immediately brought into the ER, got an MRI, and was then scheduled for surgery. He he was afraid that his medical costs were going to go through the roof, right? I mean, here in the United States, that would be, what, you know, a week in the ER and uh, and ICU and surgery and everything. What's that going to cost in the United States? Half a million dollars? $200,000? And he's got no insurance, but he's in Italy. So because he had no insurance, he had to pay the bill. And when he was all done and when he left, the hospital submitted the bill to him. It was 53 euros and 78 cents. In U.S. dollars, $56.53. That's what it costs in Italy to have knee surgery on an emergency basis with no insurance. 53 bucks. He posted a screenshot of the bill on Reddit, got 80,000 clicks. And some of the comments, uh, this is from Glassman 88. He said, this is so amazing. Here in the U.S., I was in the ER for two hours, $14,900. 90 Brabus uh, said, these are Reddit you know, posters, said, I can't imagine living in a country like that. To be honest, I would get stressed every time I have a fever. Oh, this was a European talking back to the Americans. So Kenzio said, I had an ER bill that uh, was a total of 15 minutes, and the doctor just said to call my regular doctor. He charged me $1,000. Jonker5101 said, I went to the ER for an infected abscess last year, just had it lanced and drained. I was there 12 hours. It cost $51,000. PFF Jackie uh, notes, this makes me want to cry. I had a three-month hospital stay and major heart surgery, and thank God I had good insurance from my parents because the total was over $3 million. My part to pay was $15,000. God, the U.S. sucks at health care. Amazing. Newsweek reached out to this guy who was in the Italian hospitals. He says, it's crazy that Americans can end up losing their life savings simply because they have an accident. He said, your system needs to be adapted to the 21st century as soon as possible. Really? You think? Amazing stuff. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Anna in Tustin, California. Hey, Anna, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. My argument is that I think that every time we use that word, strongman, to refer to an authoritarian leader, that we unwittingly reinforce the Republicans' attempt at branding their party as the party of uh, capable, virile, strong men. I think every time a mega person hears that, they're not thinking the way the political scientists use the word. They're thinking Democrats' effete, quiche-eating, you know, Italian shoe-wearing, effete liberals, weak men who can't do anything. And they think, yes, that's right, our party. We're the party of the strong, capable man with our Bushmasters and our, you know, and our... uh, It's a faux virility. I get what you're saying, Anna. The problem is that these words have long established meaning. And if you try to identify people using words that don't have long established meaning, people don't know who you're talking about. No, no, no. I I get what you're saying. And um, I kind of referred back to my political science textbook from a long time ago. Political scientists, from what I remember from my classes, is that when we say strongman, there are four types of authoritarian rule. Autocratic military, which is strongman, which actually a leader in our country, unless they use the military for a coup and to seize power, we're not even using it correctly. So technically, that wouldn't even apply because strongman is military, autocratic rule. An oligarchic military rule is a junta. 
and there's oligarchic and then there's authoritarian party rule and that would be I think called machine or bossism anyway so we're not even using the term correctly and I see what you're saying about using long established terms and that's been a, a word but it has other connotations like strongman competitions, strongman in the circus. Those every time they hear it, we reinforce something in their I, brain. I absolutely understand what you're saying, Anna. So and can't we replace it with, like, say, using despot, would-be dictator? If, I know if, it's if, more syllable. And, and I would say the same thing about militias, calling them, you know, uh, right-wing gangs instead. If the New York Times would go along, Extreme if the Washington truth. Post would go along, if Financial Times would go along, if ABC, CBS, and NBC would go along then my changing my vocabulary probably would work. But they're not going to go along. I mean, the rest of American media is going to continue using those words. And if if I'm the outlier here, people don't know what I'm talking about. No, but they would if you say cult leader or despot. But every time you use it, just because it's the accepted norm, I think that it just reinforces their brand. I will try to expand my vocabulary. Right, right. No, I mean, use despot, cult leader, dictator. I get it. I get it. Thank you very much. Jackie in Port Townsend, Washington. Hey, Jackie, what's on your mind today? Hi, I was thinking about the uh, Supreme Court decision, and I think the Republicans are using judicial supremacy because they're weak. And so they're calling on the court to achieve what they cannot achieve through legislation. You are absolutely right. And this is why in the early 1980s, they started a a program, the the whole Judicial Crisis Network and Federalist Society thing, to do exactly this. You're absolutely right. And they've been clear about it, by the way. They're they're not, they don't don't hide it. They'll they'll say right right out and open. Yes, we are going to rely on the courts to do things that we cannot do through the legislature. So we need to challenge them like President Lincoln did. Yep. Because their foundation of power is wrong. Yeah. The people, we the people, you know, we need to act up. And, you know, I think, I think that Lincoln added one person to the Supreme Court. It wasn't Lincoln. It was At the, the time it was of the, Greg Scott. Yeah, it was the uh, it was the legislature. Af- what what happened was, after Lincoln was assassinated, there was an opening on the Supreme Court, and um, the Congress was controlled by the Republicans. But Lincoln's vice president was a Democrat, Andrew Johnson, and a slaveholding Democrat. In fact, he owned three slaves, and um, they did not want Johnson to put a slave friendly person on the Supreme Court. So Congress met and over Johnson's objection and veto, they overruled his veto and they and they shrank the number of members of the court. And I think they shrank it down to seven. It might have even been six. I'd have to go back and look. I've written several pieces about this. And then after Johnson left the office in uh, whatever year that was, 18, well, whatever, whatever year Andrew Johnson left office, uh, and Ulysses S. Grant came in, immediately Congress reconvened and they brought the court up to its current nine. Well, they don't make the laws. No, but they do. I mean, they have been since the 1880s. And, and it's nuts. We, I, I agree with you. By the way, I just remembered that there was actually a third time that a president stood up to the Supreme Court, and that was also Andrew Jackson. And it had to do with the Second Bank of the United States. He was trying to destroy that bank, and the Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional. And he took it down anyway, claiming that it was unconstitutional and the court was wrong. It wasn't so much a direct defiance of the court like Lincoln did with, you know, defying Dred Scott and fighting a war to do so. But, you know, it was consequential. So, I, you know, I agree with you, Jackie, in both spirit and detail. I think that the Democrats broadly need to have a court agenda, and they haven't had one. And the Republicans have had a Supreme Court agenda for at least 20 years and arguably for 40 years. And the the lack of that on the part of the Democrats has been a real problem. And, you know, we're now seeing that or the fact of it. I mean, this is something that has been funded by right wing petro billionaires for 40 years. And now these billionaires are getting their way and it's killing our country. Chuck in Chicago. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. 
the Democratic mantra from now until Election Day needs to be, if we hold the House and add three or four senators, we can preserve this democracy and get things done. They need to be saying that over and over. Amen. And if they don't, what's going to happen, as you know, is the Republican House will fool around with impeaching Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell is going to change the rules. Yep. I agree. And yeah, and to start to if, if the Republicans the take the House and Senate, I predict by <laughs> February of, of next year, Mitch McConnell will have ended the filibuster. Yeah, I, I, he'll uh, just like, you know, he changed the rules with Amy Coney Barrett. Yep. He'll do it with that, too. Yep. And I would also say that we should really have a national strike on Election Day. Nobody go to work. Everybody show up to vote. You want to see the Republicans crap themselves? Nobody go to work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. But I, I understand your sentiment, Chuck. We, we I, you know, the, the, the kind of middle ground on that is to simply make it a national holiday, which I'm I'm a big fan yeah. of. Chuck, thanks a lot for the call. Daniel in Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, Daniel, what's on your mind? You said something earlier about what we need to do is don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to talk about, you know, actual policy and whatnot. Oh, friends and neighbors. Yeah. OK, go ahead. So. What I was talking about was in the South, because I've lived in North Carolina, South Carolina, now in New Hampshire, being a liberal or being an, pardon the lingo, but being an open liberal in the fire department just about cost me my job. Um, I was definitely ostracized, and I even had a chief pull me into his office after the Comey-Clinton hearing, which he actually called me into his office to watch and enjoy with everybody, thinking that my girl was going down, which I was a Bernie fan and obviously not a fan of hers. But... After that, and after we had a legitimate political discussion, which I once again pissed off all the Republicans, he kicked everybody else out, told me that my opinion was no longer wanted and no longer wanted to be heard. So after a little while of being ostracized with the fire department, we got an opportunity to go up to New Hampshire. It wasn't as bad, but at that time I was a landscaper for a little bit, and same thing. Pretty much male-dominated fields are conservative and don't want to hear a liberal. Yeah. We recently moved back to the Carolinas. I wanted to get back into public service. I'm in law enforcement now. And yesterday, <laughs> we're talking about our kids and how I've got a three-year-old. I'm looking forward to him going, to, or I'm kind of nervous, but also excited about him going to school. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about how we shouldn't be putting kids in public schools because they're thugs and whatnot. Oh, geez. And I said, well, I'm, I'm nervous about the guns, but, you know, I want him to go to public school for him to be, you know, in touch with the public, yeah. whatever that may be. Right, get a good education. That naturally devolves into a gun debate where it was funny. You would have loved it because I quoted a whole lot of what you said. He, he says, you know, if somebody drives a truck into a school, you know, is it the truck's fault or is it the person's fault? And I said, you know, I, I get your semantic argument, but it's funny you bring that up because if somebody drove a truck into the school, then your insurance company would pay for all the funerals and probably punitive damages. Why didn't that happen with guns? And in the office where I have been hiding my political stance for eight months now, he has no problem yelling at me that I'm full of crap, for lack of a better word, and that I'm one of them liberals, walks down the hall screaming at me. I can't do that. Wow. You know? That's got to be tough. I can't get away with that. It is. It's difficult. That's got to be tough. I salute you for holding the courage of your convictions and i understand you know there are some situations where you may have to hide your politics but you're a brave man daniel i i honor you i salute you thank you for the call you are here in the place where smart people get their news Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Robert in Roswell, New Mexico. Hey, Robert, what's up? Uh, just a comment, Tom. Mm-hmm. If you look at all the, all the laws passed in the red states, 
it looks like Republicans want to outlaw Democrats. Yeah. And oh, that's uh, the voting. The voting laws are all about that and have been for a long, long time. Absolutely. Yeah, and of course, if that's the case, then all Democrat votes are fraudulent. So we got to. Well, somehow, when, whenever Republicans win elections, there's not a peep about election fraud. It's only when Democrats win elections. So, you know, yeah, I, I think your analysis is 100% accurate, Robert, and very well said. Thank you. Mary in Aurora, Colorado. Hey, Mary, what's up? Hi. I wanted to talk about the Supremes removing our rights and how the GOP Christo-fascists can turn this into something pre-Nazi Germany. I was listening to an NPR interview with a 20-year FBI veteran who trains school mass shooter trains for this. And the number one rule is to run away like the law enforcement did. They talk about doors and to escape, we need doors in every classroom. They talk about more guns and armed SROs. And that's statistically ineffective. It scares students. It increases the school prison pipeline, etc. They talk about fencing, which, again, you can't run to safety if they're fencing. Hardening schools is basically turning them into prisons. And fire now, traps. And fire traps. And, I mean, there's... There's a lot to expand on in those points. I'm trying to be very fast and concise. (laughs) But if they succeed in hardening the prisons like they're suggesting, what they've done is turn every single school in every neighborhood across this country into internment camps. It's like teaching institutionalization. I mean, it's, this, is, this is one of the things that you see in kids who have been, not just through foster care, but through the institutions often associated with foster care, the kids who can't make it in foster care. And after they've spent a couple of years in a locked up, in a, in a locked situation where they're sleeping in a room with 20 other people, the idea of going to jail just doesn't seem quite as scary. And that's why you see so many adults who are recidivist criminals, regular, you know, unafraid of going back to prison criminals, really started out in that kind of a system. And so when you start reinventing your schools so that they resemble penal institutions, I think you're absolutely right, Mary. I think you're absolutely right. The consequences of this, the psychological and moral and cultural and societal consequences of this are huge. Well, and, you know, if if you want to talk about the schools and the SROs, kids won't turn people in. But if they had a 24-hour anonymous hotline, then they could turn their friends in. If they had a school counselor to talk to, then they could turn in dangerous because it's safe. And when you're yeah. kids, you're very impressionable, and the crowd around you matters. But what you can do privately is one thing. And I don't know, the whole thing about making us internment camps, setting them up in every neighborhood, and with the 100-mile border thing, that just really... Yeah, that's, edge, that's along a whole, with everything whole else. another thing. I'm with you. Mary, thank you. Thank you for the call. And thanks for watching us there in, in Colorado. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Ruth Marcus. Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. This is from the prologue. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy had a request. Would President Trump have a few minutes to speak privately? It was April 10th, 2017, a sparkling spring morning in Washington, and Kennedy was at the White House to preside over the ceremonial swearing-in of the newest Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch. First time in history that a sitting justice had sworn in one of his former law clerks to join him on the bench. Just 80 days into Trump's chaotic presidency, the confirmation of Gorsuch represented a rare and welcome victory for the beleaguered new administration, reeling from court defeats of its travel ban and despite controlling both houses of Congress, unable to repeal President Obama's signature health care law. Perhaps most important, as the prominent conservative lawyers, activists, and judges assembled in the Rose Garden that day understood, Gorsuch's addition was just one step, necessary but not sufficient, in the three decades-long conservative bid to cement control over the high court. This effort had been as frustrating as it was lengthy. Seeming opportunities for dominance repeatedly slipped away with Republican nominees, including Kennedy himself, turning out to be less reliably conservative than advertised. 
But Republicans have learned from these costly errors, assembling a farm team of potential nominees whose judicial records could be carefully scrutinized to detect any risk of ideological deviation. Gorsuch was among those who came bearing the seal of approval of the Federalist Society, the conservative legal group that had made itself the central actor in this court-shaping exercise and was playing an even more outsized role in the new administration. Trump took pains to single out one man who was not in the Rose Garden that day, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, for all he did to make this achievement possible, quoting Trump. Indeed, everyone present knew that McConnell had been the indispensable man leading to that moment. Had it not been for McConnell, President Obama would have filled the vacancy created by Justice Antonin Scalia's sudden death in February 2016, and Justice Merrick Garland would be sitting on the high court, anchoring a newly fortified liberal majority. McConnell, with his audacious announcement that the opening would not be filled, no matter that Obama had 11 months remaining in his term, had avoided that fateful outcome. His intervention meant that Gorsuch now occupied Scalia's seat, a conservative for conservative swap. The next vacancy was almost certain to be the far more critical one, shifting the court's balance instead of affirming it. On that score, all eyes were on the 80-year-old Kennedy, then serving his 30th year on the high court and, by dint of age, years of service and political allegiance, the most likely to depart. The swing justice on an already conservative court, Kennedy was pleased about Gorsuch, but he had another former law clerk in mind as he was ushered into Trump's private dining room for an unusual session with the president and White House counsel Don McGahn. Justices are routinely invited to the White House for social events, state dinners, and holiday parties, but at least until Trump took office, such one-on-one -on -one meetings were rare in the modern era. With its finicky notions about preserving the appearance of judicial independence, unlike the relaxed days when justices did double duty as private counselors to presidents such as Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. In the chronically leaky Trump White House, aides took pains to keep the Trump-Kennedy meetings secret. There were no public reports about the session, and only a few senior officials ever learned what Kennedy said to Trump that day. The justice's message to the president was as consequential as it was straightforward, and it was a remarkable insertion by a sitting justice into the distinctly presidential act of judge picking. As a candidate, Trump had upended tradition by issuing a list of judges. It ultimately grew to 21, including Gorsuch, from which he pledged to pick his Supreme Court nominees. Now Kennedy had a recommendation for Trump's list. You named one of my former clerks, Kennedy told Trump. You should think about another one, Brett Kavanaugh. When Anthony Kennedy spoke, the Trump White House listened, with good reason. During the campaign, when Trump, against all expectations, emerged as the Republican nominee and ultimate victor over Hillary Clinton, the issue of judicial selection had been a utilitarian means to an electoral end. The socially conservative and evangelical voters Trump needed to win were deeply, understandably suspicious of the thrice-married, once-democratic New Yorker. They were particularly dubious about how Trump would approach the critical task of shaping the federal judiciary, especially the Supreme Court. The list of high court candidates that Trump produced with the help of the Federalist Society, upending convention with typical Trumpian bravado, was explicitly aimed at calming their concerns, and it succeeded beyond the wildest expectations of its creators. On Election Day, more than a quarter of Trump voters identified the Supreme Court as the critical factor in determining their vote. White, evangelical, born-again Christians broke 81% for Trump to 16% for Hillary Clinton, meaning that Trump outperformed previous Republican nominees Mitt Romney, John McCain, and George W. Bush among such voters. In office, Trump not only keenly understood the politics of judicial selection and its importance for his re-election, he also gained a new appreciation for what the Supreme Court meant to a president's legacy. Thanks to McConnell's ruthlessness, Trump had inherited what no president had before, the gift of an existing vacancy. Supreme Ambition by Ruth Marcus. And welcome back. Carol in Alexandria, Virginia. Hey, Carol, what's up? Hi, I wanted to make a comment on Roe v. Wade. Go I think it. we need to go medieval back. Let's start with no federal funds to any state that outlaws abortion or bans contraception. After all, you're threatening the life of a federal worker, potentially, and uh, so on. I mean, there's a lot we can do from the standpoint of make, hitting them in the wallet. It's the only way to get their attention anyway. So, I, You know, I know I the, the Jimmy Carter 
threatened to cut federal funds to states that didn't lower their speed limit to 55 during the, the gas crisis. But there was a clear connection between speed limits and gas and, and federal highway funds. What? I, maybe I'm missing something. What about the health federal of Obama? funds for hospitals? That, that, you know, federal... No, I'm talking about, you know, you're on a military... All the services provided to the military, all the civilian workers, all the service women... Well, they're not going to, they're not going to, you know, shut down Lackland Air Force Base in, in San Antonio just because of this. But, but I'm, I'm thinking what federal funds could be associated with abortion and withheld from states that criminalize abortion. I think, you, I think you're onto something, Carol. And, and, it, and it occurs to me that the, the, the clearest connection would be hospital funds. Right? That the fe- could easily be. Federal, federal I mean, subsidies to hospitals. And, and, I, and I they're substantial. I can think of other... I can think of other things that would also be financial, but the the thing is to focus on financially hitting these people. Right, right, and 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 it would have to tie. That to, gets their attention. Yeah, and it would have to tie to health care somehow. Yes. Yeah, fascinating. Thank good, good idea. Hey, so we're much. we're brainstorming things here. Thank you, Carol. Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, we just have thirty seconds. You wanted to talk about Publix? Yes, yeah, uh, Tom. You know, unfortunately, it intersects with two issues, but yes. That you know, unfortunately, my COVID negative streak ended yesterday. I got diagnosed with COVID nineteen. So, oh my! You know, I even went to the hospital yesterday because I was concerned my oxygen levels and stuff. But today, I'm fine. Just to let you know. Good. But I do have COVID, and so what brings to the light the public thing? What gets me upset, Tom, is that I have a wife and a child who's under five years old, she's three years old, and if, if, if public doesn't order vaccines, then it makes it harder for her to find a place to get her vaccinated from. So I just think it's both, you know, BS the political decision that public is doing yeah. about this. Yeah, I'm with you, Alejandro. I think it's wrong. And I don't know if this is the kind of thing that a lawsuit could be made out of, but I, I just think it's wrong. Alejandro, thank you. It's always nice to hear from you. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. we got a lot to talk about tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 